Hi, I'm David Freudberg, host of Humankind. I've always been fascinated by the human voice, which experts say is as unique to each person as their fingerprint. In these podcasts, we celebrate the human voice in all its wonderfully diverse forms, young and old, different accents and cultural contexts. Writers sometimes struggle to find their own voice, but you can kind of tell when someone is speaking from a place of authenticity and integrity. That's when I most love listening to voices. Thank you for listening. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by the Humankind Program Fund. When people are worrying about things they can't do anything about and they're re- repetitively focusing on thoughts and images of these bad things happening, they're in a sense hypnotizing themselves and, cre- with, and reviewing suggestions, thoughts, and mental images that are frightening. And so they're scaring themselves. In our worrisome world, a physician offers solutions to the emotional and medical problem of worrying too much. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Whether you grow mildly concerned or become an outright worrywart, few problems are solved just because we brood over them. Worry is a natural, common response to challenging conditions, and it's generally also a spectacular waste of time, not to mention drain of energy. And yet even the most stoic souls among us might begin to fret at the state of our world in reaction to the barrage of troubling news we're exposed to through the media. Physician Martin Rossman. Before all our marvelous communication abilities, you're living in a in the jungle or the savannah or a village or a little town and daily life goes on and there are things that affect us but you know now we get every bad thing that ever happened or could happen to anybody anywhere in the world either now or in the near future or in the distant future and it's alarming to the brain it stimulates that emotional part of the brain and that fight or flight response part of the brain and then they send signals up to what i call our thinking brain our cerebral cortex the our evolutionary prize that we're still learning how to use and they get it all excited about how do we solve this problem and starts going around and around in circles so we need to be able to one observe what we're paying attention to, observe what we're thinking about, make some choices, and then learn some skills in where we want to put our attention to interrupt those stressful responses, to make other choices in how we think about them. We have to learn how to, we have to kind of upgrade our mental software so that we can process this run of information. Dr. Martin Rossman, clinical instructor at the University of California Medical School in San Francisco, specializes in interactions between a patient's frame of mind and how the human body reacts. He's also author of The Worry Solution. Dr. Rossman likes to recite the ancient tale of five blind men, each feeling their way around an elephant. Depending on which part of the animal they touched, each had a very different description of what an elephant looks like. Like the five 
blind men examining the elephant. You know, the way you approach the world has a great deal to do with how you perceive it. So some of the things that, um, some of the conclusions that we reach about the world may be objectively true in some way, which is very hard to to assess, but a lot of our daily lives are very subjective. Let me give you a, an example that just makes it very easy to understand. I know two people who have won the lottery, and they had completely polar responses to it, and they won millions of dollars. And one person was ecstatic, and her life changed forever and for the better, and she you know, was kind of blown out of the water and took some time to think about it and talk about it and make plans and so on and so forth. And she made a wonderful thing out of it. The other guy was an older guy, and he also was blown out of the water, but his world fell apart. He got so frightened by the responsibility of what he was going to do with the money and how he would deal with all the people who were now coming to talk to him or going to talk to him. It hadn't even happened yet. But he was right, that did happen. Anyhow, he got clinically depressed and developed really a, a clinical anxiety disorder. He had to go into, and it took quite a bit of therapy and even medications and so on for him to be able to deal with this. So they both won the lottery. But one went to heaven and one went to hell, in a sense. And the difference, what's the difference in that? The difference was what came to mind about that experience and how they processed that information. Few of us will have to process the emotional roller coaster of winning a big lottery jackpot, but our lesser dramas may nevertheless appear very vivid, at least in the mind's eye. And if they are troublesome and our imaginations take flight, we can rapidly lapse into a downward spiral of unproductive worry, what Martin Rossman calls a hamster wheel of ruminative thinking. And so we kind of stew in these juices, hyperarousal. And as a physician for 40 years and, and a student of mind-body medicine, I can tell you this is the, the great, even though there's a lot of talk about it, it's still kind of invisible. And it is the great unseen risk factor for almost every major disease. So how does worrying by patients surface in your medical practice and uh, I'd like you to discuss something called the worried well, which is a, a, a very large number of people who visit their doctors about a medical complaint when, in fact, they are not ill. What's going on there? Well, there's a lot of things that are going on. One is that um, even though the worried well don't have not generally developed a, uh, a specific disease, syndrome, thank God, they do have a great variety of symptoms that in themselves can be scary because anxiety, stress, or fight or flight changes the way your body feels. That's how you know you're scared. If you didn't change the way you felt, you wouldn't know that you were scared. You wouldn't be on alert. And if you look at the symptoms that are attributable to anxiety, it's typically a feeling of a very, very uncomfortable feeling. There are very few feelings that are more uncomfortable than anxiety. Typically lives in the chest or the upper stomach. There is There can be rapid heartbeat, palpitations, skipped beats, blood pressure goes up, people get neck pain, people get headaches, people get queasiness and nausea and upset stomach. Some people even get uh, loose stools and diarrhea. 
in modern stress or what's called type 2 stress, which, where, where we are reacting on a fairly continual basis to the things that, are, that we're carrying in our mind that frighten us, we are at a, at a highly aroused level with a low to medium, sometimes even highly um, active fight or flight response without periods of rest and renewal, without periods of recharge. Many people never get a period of letdown, um, including even into the nighttime and into the sleep. And it has been said many times that, you know, somewhere between 50 to 75% of all visits to primary care doctors in the United States are basically for stress or emotional reactions, but they're manifesting physically. They're manifesting as chest pain, trouble breathing, headaches, can't sleep, nausea, stomach pain, sense that something bad is happening. That's a prominent symptom of anxiety is a feeling of dread or impending doom. talking about worry, let's talk about the opposite of worry. What is our experience when we are worry-free? Well, it's a lot more pleasant, for one thing. And um, one of the really interesting things about this approach, uh, David, is that we use the same tool that has created the worry, which is our imaginations, to create a a worry-free state, at least temporarily. And the easiest way to do that is you daydream yourself to a place that's beautiful to you, safe, a place you love to be in, where you feel comfortable, you feel welcome, a real place you've been to or an imaginary place that comes to mind. And then immerse yourself in that daydream by paying attention to what to your senses. And so notice what you see, what you hear in that place. Notice the quality of the air. There may be an aroma. Uh, Notice what time of day or night it is. Notice what season of the year it is. Notice how it feels to be there. Find the most comfortable spot and let yourself just get quiet. Nothing else to do and no decisions you have to make. And you just... Just be. Just be there in that place and enjoy that and soak up that relaxation like a sponge. And what we know now, that's a very, very old method. What we know now from neuroscience, where we do functional MRIs looking at people's brains when they do that exercise, that when they imagine the visual details, the part of their brain, the occipital cortex in the back of the brain, that processes vision gets active. When they imagine either that it's quiet or the birds chirping or the wind in the trees or whatever it is, the waves lapping on the shore, the part of their brain that processes sound gets active. When they imagine the warmth of the sun, the sensory cortex gets active. When they pay attention to the time of day, other areas of the brain get active that put that sensory information together. So what happens is that your thinking brain, your cortex, all these different parts of it are transmitting messages that it looks like a beautiful, safe, peaceful place. It sounds like it. It feels like it. It's quiet. It's safe. There's nothing to do. It sends signals down to that emotional and 
and reptilian brain that's on alert for danger, and it says all clear. And then that part of your nervous system sends out the all clear signal. Your body automatically goes into what we call the relaxation response after uh, Herbert Benson at Harvard called the relaxation response, which is in many ways the opposite of the stress response. And your body um, returns blood flow to areas that it's taken it from. Your blood is thinner and flows easier. Your blood pressure comes down. Your heart rate comes down. And you come out of it more relaxed and more refreshed and more resilient and ready to deal with the real stresses of the day. So so you can have that experience even if it's for a few minutes. And you can luxuriate in it. You can luxuriate in it. You can spend, so you can do that a couple of times a day just because you like it, just because you want to. You can just tell yourself or give yourself the opportunity to get off the planet for a few minutes, as my partner David Brezer used to say. Just, I'm just getting off for a few minutes. I'm getting off the merry-go-round. I'm getting off the hamster wheel. Uh, Call me if there's a fire or a real danger. Otherwise, I'm busy for 10 or 15 minutes. We're talking with University of California Medical School clinical instructor Martin Rossman, a physician and author of The Worry Solution. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. For more information on this segment about The Worry Solution, please visit our website, humanmedia.org. One of the best-known ways to relieve worry is encapsulated in something called the serenity prayer. Uh, Could you recite that one-sentence prayer and uh, tell me how you see that? Yeah, I think the serenity prayer is uh, a brilliant and inspired thought. And uh, if you are a praying type, Uh, you begin it with the word Lord, and if for any reason you're not a praying type, you can leave that word out. But it's, um, Lord, grant me the serenity to accept the things that I cannot change, the courage to change the things that I can change, and the wisdom to know the difference. It's a prayer that uh, that apparently has roots back to Roman times, it was distributed on an index card to troops in World War II, and then it was adopted by uh, Alcoholics Anonymous and is a, kind of a central, uh, one of the central thought forms and prayers in 12-step programs where it's been used very successfully. One of the very first things I do in the Worry Solution is invite people to write down all the things that they're worried about. Get them out of their head. Just write down big things, little things, clarify what you're worrying about, and then to sort them into basically three columns. One is things that you might potentially be able to do something about, things that you're powerless to do something about, and then a middle column of things you're not quite sure. You can't tell whether you can do something about that or not. And then there are different approaches, uh, cognitive approaches, guided imagery approaches for things in each of those 
columns, the things that you can't do anything about. Um, there are ways to think about letting go of them, which are effective for some people. What's even more effective, though, is something that I call positive worry, where you take the thing you're worried about, because when you're worrying about things you can't do anything about, in a sense, you're praying that that doesn't happen, whether you're praying to a specific God or God by a particular name. You're, you're wishing, you're praying, you're hoping that that doesn't happen. But there is a principle that we know about in psychotherapy and hypnosis and suggestion of all kind that tells us whenever possible to put suggestions in a positive format because the unconscious doesn't respond. We don't think the unconscious responds as well to a negative format. Pros and people who are good at golf or any target game never think about what they don't want to hit. They focus on what they do want to hit. So they focus on a spot in the fairway where they want to see the ball land, and they visualize the ball landing there. And because they're good enough, they can imagine what kind of swing they want to make and so on and so forth. And the very, very best athletes in every sport do that. Is it possible to get to a place where we are neither imagining a dire outcome nor imagining a positive outcome, but just sort of being present without projecting one way or the other into the future? Yeah, I think that's called uh, acceptance. That's, you know, be here now. That's uh, certainly a tenant of many mindfulness and meditative kind of traditions. Um, I think there's a, there's a great value in it, if only because it tremendously re reduces anxiety, you know. We were talking about the serenity prayer. What is the role of faith in getting past worry? Faith plays a huge role. I, I would imagine that if a person was a truly faithful person in that, a person trusts that there's a higher power, a deity, a God, a creator, um, who is good, ultimately. And um, even though life contains a great deal of suffering and hardship. And this is certainly a matter of faith because if you, you know, you look at the terrible things that happen to people and the suffering that, that happens with people and the suffering that people inflict on other people, that certainly challenges the ability to be, to feel that God is good and God is everywhere and it all operates towards the good. You have to identify with a much bigger part of being than your personal self or your family or your race or anything like that. So Maybe God's goodness in that case is expressed in our drive to improve, to be of greater help to people who are suffering. It's possible. I don't know how God operates, to tell you the truth. I wish I did, and I hope that uh, when my time comes, one of my favorite uh, images is that somebody's going to, some angel's going to sit me down and explain how the whole thing works and how pain and suffering fits into the grand plan and 
why it's necessary and so on and so forth because it's not a part of life that I particularly enjoy and I don't know many people who do. So, but if you are of genuine faith, and I've had the pleasure of meeting people of genuine faith, and it may be a faith that I don't necessarily share in a particular religion, but they are peaceful people. And people who are not religious and, and don't share that may be critical of that. We know the old expression that, uh, you know, religion is the opiate of the masses, and that's, there's certainly truth in that to 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 vest your belief that everything is all right ultimately and that we just do the best that we can and we maintain our faith and that we stay loving is is one um, often very effective way to get through life and to meet life's challenges. So I've known people who have suffered tremendous loss, loss of a child, and in their sadness and their grief, it's not like they don't feel the grief, but have maintained their faith that there is a purpose to it and that and that, that that child is with God now and that ultimately will all be with God. And, and I envy that kind of a faith because I think it can bring you a deep kind of peacefulness. And I think those people are more prone to pray, which is that kind of positive worry I talked about, rather than fret and worry. You know, they will bring it to God and they will leave it to God. And they will get a certain amount of comfort. The deeper their faith, the more comfort. But a certain amount of relief. A certain amount of relief and a certain amount of comfort in the in the big picture. But many of us in, in modern life are missing that. You know, there's a lot of um, loss of faith in modern life, and for both for reasons that are very understandable, I think. And I think even though most people clearly believe that there's a bigger power than us that created. I think you'd have to be kind of silly not to look around you and say that there isn't some larger system of organization that you didn't personally create. And whether that's a, you know, a wise old man with a white beard or it's, a, you know, or however you picture that God or it's a creator or a great spirit, whatever that large organization is, doesn't always grant our wishes, but, uh, but very frequently and possibly always responds to it one way or another. Faith doesn't have to be theological or dogmatic in any rigid way. In fact, trusting in the process requires a certain flexibility. So we're grounded enough to be able to work with whatever unexpected slings and arrows life may hurl at us. Otherwise, we'd be too terrified to cross the street for fear of getting hit by a passing car. We'd obsess over the theoretical possibility of being unable to draw our next breath. There are infinite dire scenarios we could worry ourselves sick about. But what do we gain from agonizing over them? when we could just relax and take things as they come. Dr. Martin Rossman. I'm a person who has deep faith that, you know, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday, I'm not so sure. So I think about it. The days when I have the faith are much easier days than the days when I'm questioning. Hopefully I learn something from that questioning. But I can always bring, back, bring myself back to what can I do in this situation? And does thinking about this situation more now or shifting the way I think into a more creative phase and getting quiet and letting 
whatever wisdom I have access to possibly get me to a place where I can do something about this? Or is this something I just either need to let go of or accept or grieve or pray for? Um, is a very, very helpful way to ease the, the journey through the day. Can I ask uh, how prone you are personally to worry and how you handle worrisome situations? For me personally, uh, I have learned to worry much more effectively. That's a lot where this book comes from. So I come to it, you know, people often say to me, you seem so calm, your voice is calming, and I am very good at helping other people relax and get calmer. That's some kind of gift that I've been given. But but a lot of that gift has come from being anxious and worried. So, and looking for ways to deal with that and having been blessed with the ability to study mind and body and spirit, study the great religious traditions of the earth, to study psychological traditions, to look at both modern and look at modern brain science to see what we've learned about it and explored it on many levels. And it's helped me a great deal. And that's when I started to teach this to other people and see that this works for many, many other people. Where do you go at a moment where you're feeling high anxiety? Where do I go mentally or physically? Sometimes it's both. You know, once the anxiety has been triggered, um, it takes it typically takes a little while to wind it down. So where I go first is my breathing because an instantaneous change that happens with stress and anxiety is that we tend to breathe more shallowly. We tend to breathe up higher in our chest. If you can get your breath down into your abdomen, learn abdominal breathing or belly breathing as we often call it, and you can do four to six of those, that starts to shift you towards a relaxation. Um, I will, if I can, I will then get myself in a place where I can be alone and get quiet by breathing, by relaxing my body, by going to a quiet place inside, giving it enough time, which is usually five or ten minutes in order to be able to get quiet like that. And that's something that I've learned to do and cultivated over the years and that people can learn to do at least pretty well in a fairly short period of time. It does take some attention and some work. Um, if it's a bigger thing than I and I can and I've got the time, I like to get out into nature and walk and hike and be quiet and let my, again, let it roll through my mind and use that creative function of worry to see if any part of me, my unconscious mind, my emotional intuitive brain, has something to contribute to solving that problem or if it's something I just have to let go of. So I use these things on a on pretty much a daily basis. And that doesn't mean I don't get scared. That doesn't mean I don't get anxious. And that doesn't mean I can't be in periods where I'm really gnawing on something or I'm really frightened. And I have to use these things just to kind of keep anywhere near an even, uh, even keel. Um, I am not in the habit of habitual worrying anymore. And I don't know that I was ever a real bad habitual worrier like some people I I know but I worry I find myself doing that much less I just I think it's a waste of time it doesn't do me any good it doesn't do anybody else any good I think it, as a matter of fact it's one of the reasons that habitual worriers should think about uh, learning some skills that will get them out of it because it not only affects you as a person it affects the people around you thank you very much talking with 
Martin Rossman, a physician, a clinical instructor at the University of California, San Francisco Medical School, and author of The Worry Solution. Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Antonio Oliart. Editorial assistance from Thomas Royal and Kathy Graham. Webmaster Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to Tony Buck. Our program is produced by Human Media in association with WGBH Boston. Program development provided by Shart Media. To purchase a CD copy of this program, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN. That's 1-800-5-L-I-S-T-E-N. Or visit our website where you can also obtain an audio download of this and our other programs and can hear selected episodes free. You can access free written materials related to this program as well. Our web address is humanmedia.org. Again, if you'd like to purchase a CD copy of Humankind by phone, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN. And our web address is humanmedia.org. This segment, The Worry Solution with Dr. Martin Rossman, is Humankind Program number 160. The executive producer is David Freudberg. This is Humankind. To hear more episodes of Humankind, you can subscribe to our free podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast player. A new episode each week. The podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you enjoy this program, be sure to leave us a kind review at iTunes and Stitcher. If you want to support the program, please visit humanmedia.org. And at the top of the homepage, click on How You Can Help. Again, our web address is humanmedia.org. Thanks.